Do you remember when you were 14? Did you have it all figured out at 14? You knew exactly what you're going to do at 14 for the rest of your life, and you're still doing it today because you had it all mapped out at 14. Anybody like that? Raise your hand in the room. Nobody that I can see. A couple maybe. At 14, okay? You think you know it all? Maybe you don't. The only thing I can remember was popping pimples, looking for my next girlfriend, trying to pass math class or something like that. That was about it that I can remember. Can you imagine at 14 being told by an angel in the middle of the night that you're going to have a baby and you've never been with anybody else, so you've been walking the straight and narrow, but you're going to have a baby and that baby's God and that, that God baby that's inside of you uh, you're going to raise that child. Don't you know that Mary had this overwhelming sensation come over her? I mean, there was bombs dropping in her life all around as she's sitting here dealing with this. It is changing her 14, 15-year-old mind. It is not uncommon. It's not uncommon in the first century for somebody to be engaged when they're 14 or 15 and be married when they're 16 or 17. That engagement period was that betrothal period that was absolutely binding it was a committal, uh, commitment period. You didn't have all the responsibilities and all the privileges of marriage, but you did have the commitment of marriage, that you were going to be committed and that you were going to be together. You just need to age a little bit like cheese, I guess. Age, uh, grow up a little bit more, and then you were, you were married. Well, Mary was in that betrothal period. Now, whether she was 14, 15, 16, we don't exactly know. Most likely, again, according to first century tradition, she was a teenager. She was a pregnant teenager. Now, that's not an uncommon thing. A pregnant teenager who's a virgin is very uncommon, okay? That is uncommon. That that is still an earth-shaking move. What were the bombs that were dropping in her life on that day? Can you imagine when Gabriel, the archangel, shows up in your life and tells you that you're going to have a child? Can you imagine... The uh, how did the angel appear? Can you imagine what did, how, what was the voice like of the angel? What, what was it? Was it a techno voice? Was it a little soft, gentle voice? Was it a loud, thunderous voice? I don't know. We don't know. But there was a bomb there that dropped in her life, woke her up, changed her life, changed her paradigm, changed her ten-year plan for the rest of her life. Actually, can you imagine what that angel said? What she felt when that angel said, "You have been found with favor." You have favor given to you. That was a moment in time that, that probably, again, woke her from her sleep. That word favor, if you understand it, is actually the word that we use for grace. Grace, favor, it's the word, same word in the Greek, karos, which is the idea that you have been shown favor, grace from God. Now, what did Mary do to deserve such an honor giving birth to the Son of God. Was she just a very good child? Did she pass all her classes? Did she never skip school? Did she never backtalk her mom? What made her so special that she could raise a child such as God? The fact is, is that nothing. She was a normal child. She was a normal teenager. She faced the same normal pressures that any other 14, 15, 16-year-old girl would face in the first century. So she was going through all of that, and yet she has been told that she has favor from God. And it wasn't because she was something special. You know, it's called grace. And it's grace is the same thing that saves you and me. It's the same thing that God found favor with her. Grace is grace. It's that unmerited favor from God. 
And it was a wake-up moment in my life one day when I realized there was nothing I could do to make God love me anymore that He already loved me. And there was nothing that I could do to make God love me any less. That is a revelation of grace. The realization that I didn't do anything to deserve God's grace, His favor, His kindness. Neither can I be bad enough that His grace can't touch me. In fact, He gives us grace upon grace, the Bible says. The fact is is that grace is a beautiful thing. Mary was found favor from God. She received grace from God. It didn't make her divine. It didn't make her superhuman. It means she could walk on water or heal people. It just meant that God showed her favor. That was the first bomb that dropped in her life on that night when that angel told her that God shows favor. But the second bomb that dropped on that night was that you're pregnant. You're pregnant and you have never been with another person. Now, you remember in fifth grade when you were sitting in uh, health class or biology class or whatever in fifth grade and they took the boys over here and they took the girls over there and if you're my age you had a little film strip and that little film strip went through and they told you all about the birds and the bees uh, what was going to happen in your life about the fifth grade when, when it was for me now if you're in school today maybe it's DVD maybe it's all kinds of but it was film strip for me and Mary can you imagine in her mind thinking oh, hold it I was in fifth grade once and I, and I took that class and I don't remember them ever showing me where a child could be born to a virgin that doesn't register for her in fact the Bible says that she was deeply troubled it was in fact how does it say it says Mary was greatly troubled one translator put it like this she was thoroughly confused deep down inside of her it did not compute god showed her favor god gave this virgin young teenage girl the responsibility and the honor of raising god this is big in the bible in luke chapter 1 verse 26 follow along as i read it says in the sixth month the angel of gabriel was sent from from God in the city of Galilee. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Verse 27 now. To the virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. In the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And, she, and, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. There it is. He is favored. He has found favor with Mary. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and, and tried to discern the sort of greeting this might be. She was absolutely blown away. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There it is again, twice in this passage. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he, will, and, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. This little pimple-faced girl from Nazareth, the wrong side of the track, has just been told that you have a child inside of your womb. This child was not put there by man's seed. It was put there by God Himself. And you are going to raise Him up and He will take over the throne of David. How is she going to tell her girlfriends? How is she going to get this word out? 
This doesn't make sense. This doesn't compute. I can't biologically tell you about it. Her parents are going to call her a liar. Whatever's going on in her mind, I can only begin to imagine. But it is huge. It is life-changing. It is global-changing. It is forever changing the scope of planet Earth. What happens in this little child's womb? Larry King, and you all know Larry King is one of the one of the premier people on television to interview and people and has interviewed kings and everybody around the world. Was asked one time if you could interview anybody in the world from time in history, no matter what, who would you interview? On his list was Jesus Christ. He said, if I had one time I could ask Jesus Christ one question, this would be the question that I would ask Him. I would like to ask Him if He indeed was virgin born. Because the answer to that question would define history. See, we realize from the the virgin birth of, of, of our Savior that that is so huge, that is so pivotal that is so seismic of a shift on the on the planet in, in the cosmic world and in the world in which we live that that right there is defying all human reason all biology of everything we cannot factor manufacture that today and if i could understand it i could understand all miracles what larry king was saying and what i want to say to you today is that this is huge And I know that I come today on this Sunday before Christmas. And I know that the familiar songs and the familiar sights and the familiar message and the familiar text of Scripture, you can just easily gloss it over and move right on. As I've heard my Christmas message, and I'm moving on. Or you can enter into the skin of a 14, 15-year-old girl and you can enter into her mind, into her heart and be transformed as she was. As, As her life was changed as she heard a message from the angel of God as she heard this message and just relive the Christmas story, please. Don't let it be just another Christmas story told. When you look at this passage, there's been... Quite a bit of um, quite a bit of excitement about Mary and her life, and and they've even exalted Mary to to a point, and, and 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 elevated her to some kind of deity. And I have to admit that she had quite the honor given to her on that day. She had quite the honor to, to be calling in life, the highest calling in life, I would say, to be a mother. And any mother in this room knows that the greatest calling you have on your life is to be a mother. That is the greatest calling. But she had, on top of the greatest calling, she had the greatest honor. And she also had the easiest job. She was, the greatest honor was to be the mother to, the, to, to God. The greatest, or the easiest job was to be the mother to God. Can you imagine? You never have to worry about this child backtalking you. You never have to worry about this child coming in late. You never have to wonder where this child is at, at the wrong time or doing the wrong thing. Now, I have to admit, though, there was a time that Jesus was delinquent. He wasn't sinning, but he was delinquent because his parents didn't know where they were, where he was. It was a time whenever they were traveling from Jerusalem back to Nazareth where Jesus had, had grown up as a child. And, and they were traveling over the, because of the Passover. They'd been in Jerusalem. They'd been celebrating there. And they were on their way back. And in some kind of caravan fashion is the way we can imagine this. They were traveling in this caravan fashion back to home. And, of course, all the parents are going together. Maybe the wives are together. The men are together. And the children are off together. 
They get home and everybody gets to their homes and Mary and Joseph get to their home and there's no Jesus. Jesus never shows up. They start looking around. Again, I'm embellishing the story a little bit, but you probably can imagine this happening. They get home and they realize that Jesus isn't with them. So they hightail it back to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. And so they find Jesus, but Jesus isn't in some bar. He isn't in some trouble. He isn't in some mischief. He's hanging out in the temple. He's hanging out in the temple, being taught, teaching, learning, growing, worshiping. It's an amazing thing. And the parents say, where have you been? Can you imagine as a mother, you'd like to pinch his head off and give him a kiss all at the same time. I mean, but here it is. You have Mary, the mother of God. She can't even keep up with God. I mean, that's a responsibility. It's a pretty high honor. Now, how many of you all have ever left your kids somewhere? Raise your hand. All right, Lori, raise yours. You left Joshua at Walmart one day. Just want to let you all know, don't ask us to be your babysitters. But I have left the kids here as well. I've left the kids places and she thought, I thought she had them. She thought I had them. We get, a, we get home. Do you have the kids? No, do you have the kids? And we get a call from the church. Hey, your kids are here. You want to pick them up? You know, you want us to bring them to you? You know, all, but I've, I've left our kids. Mary is human, okay? Let's not make her divine. Let's let her be what she is. She's a mother with the responsibility of raising a king. It's a noble, honorable thing that she is going through and experiencing all rolled up into one. But the problem is, is the statement that I read earlier from the angels has caused a bit of confusion because some people have taken the phrase that you were favored, that you were favored, and they have turned it into something that it's not. And I want to talk about two different views of Mary today. Because the way we understand these two different views will help us to understand the way we should view and honor and worship Jesus at this Christmas season. The first view is the exalted view of Mary. Because of what the angel said that you were favored, he said it not once, but he said it twice. And because when, when, Mar when Mary goes and visits in the very next scene of the story, goes and visits Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says, you are blessed among women. In fact, I want us to, to, to read that verse, those verses. Verse 42, skip down there. Chapter 1, verse 42, it says, And she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. So here we have the fact that Mary is told by the angel, is told by a relative, Elizabeth, that she's been blessed, you've been favored. Now this is what has happened. In recent history, and I say recent compared to 2,000 years ago, recent history, there has been an exalted view of Mary that has emerged in the traditions of Christendom. And I'm going to say this as clear as I can without pointing too many fingers. That we've got to be careful about our Christian faith. That what are we going to base our faith on? The Scriptures or traditions? We've got to be careful that we don't allow traditions to shape our faith over the Scriptures. Where the Scripture speaks, we bow our knee and we say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Okay, we bow our knees and we, we, we humbly say yes to the Scriptures. Where traditions, if I was to insert a tradition or the church was to insert a tradition, we've got to be careful of that. That's a dangerous road to go down. Because then you end up creating things that you end up worshiping your traditions and you miss the God of the faith. 
And that's a dangerous road path to take. But there are some traditions that have emerged in our present day history that have emerged that have deified Mary, that have made her God, divine-like. There are traditions that have called her the divine advocate, the giver of grace, the queen of heaven, the co-redemptix. It's actually doctrines that are taught by some that Mary is actually the Savior as much as Jesus is. Almost equal because Mary, after all, is the mother of Jesus. So therefore, she must be also divine. It's a very scary doctrine to go after. It wasn't actually until 1854 when the Immaculate Conception of Mary was even espoused. And that was espoused by Pope Pius. It was Pope Leo who said that nothing comes to us except by God's will and through Mary. Now, this is a very scary statement. No one can attain to the Son except through the Mother. What's that? This is teaching a doctrine that exalts Mary, that makes Mary the Savior, the avenue to which you get to Jesus, the avenue in which you get to God. So you pray to Mary, so you look to Mary as your co-redemptive element. Listen, Mary was human. Mary sinned. Hey, she left her child. She couldn't even keep up with her child. We know that she was imperfect. There are, there are, there's so much to say about this. That we, the danger of exalting Mary, jot this down, is it leads to misplaced priorities in worship. Mary knew who she was and she knew who she was not. She knew who Jesus was and she knew who she needed to worship. So let us listen to Mary today. What did Mary say about Mary? What did Mary believe about Jesus? And Mary does not espouse worshiping, praying to, considering her as a co-redemptive giver of grace. Now hang with me. I'm going somewhere with this. Because you will be with people who will tell you, you need to pray to Mary. And I want to say, take me to the Scriptures that show me that. Take me to the Scriptures that show me that Mary is the giver of grace. Don't take me to the traditions of the church. Take me to the Scriptures and let that be my guide. When you look at Mary, you actually only see her about four times in the Scripture narratives. You see her in the birth narrative. You see her in the wedding feast, the Cana of Galilee, whenever she tells Jesus to turn the water into wine. And we'll come back to that in a moment. We see her in the crowds whenever Jesus was being thronged by the people. She was trying to rescue him from the crowds at one point. We also see her at the foot of the cross. Four different times we see Mary in the, in, the, in the gospel narratives. You would think that if she was the Savior of the world, she would be more than just four times in the gospel narrative. But I love the story of the, of the wedding feast. In case you didn't know what Mary did, uh, she was the first century wedding planner. She was uh, actually leading up a, a wedding party of sorts. And they had run out of the good wine. Now, if you're Baptist, you, you've kind of explained away the good wine thing. But it, the good wine is the good wine, so you'll have to figure that out on your own, okay? So they had run out of the good stuff. And they needed some more good stuff. So they go to, to Mary, the wedding planner, takes her servants over to Jesus and says, Jesus, we need some more good stuff. Would you take this water and would you make it the good stuff? Would you make it the wine? All right? Now, that's interesting, Because Jesus hasn't done any miracles up until this point. But Mary knew something about Jesus. 
She knew he was divine. She knew she, he had the powers. If Mary was divine, why didn't Mary turn the water into wine? If Mary was divine, why didn't she do the miracles? She points to Jesus, the miracle man. She points to Jesus, the only divine one. And this is what she tells the servant. She says, do whatever he says. Now, I don't have time to tell the whole story of the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. It's a message unto itself. But just hang with me on that and just see that what Mary says is Mary points to Jesus and says, that man is the one you need to listen to. Do whatever he says. The point is this, is that when we exalt Mary to be divine, the co-redemptix, the grace giver, the one in which we connect with God, the Queen of Heaven, when we do that, we are in essence elevating her and misplacing the priority of worship. So I want to take you to the second, which is an elevated view of Mary. All right? I'm not saying that she's, uh, uh, she's worthless. She's favored. She's got grace. She's the blessed among all women. I don't doubt that at all. But what can we learn from this blessed woman? And what is a balanced view of Mary that can motivate us, be an example to us as we worship the one and the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Because that's what Mary does. What we learn from this when we look at this is that the elevated view of Mary gives us an example for worshiping Jesus. Where when we elevate Mary, when we exalt Mary, we actually have this misplaced. While all of a sudden we're substituting Mary in place of Jesus. Well, when we, look at, when we truly look at the gospel narrative, we find out that Mary is worshiping Jesus. And it's a beautiful story that unfolds here. Take your Bibles. Again, you're in chapter 1 of Luke. We're going to read verse 46 and following here. But I want us to understand something about Mary. Mary was a person. She was not divine. She was an example, not a redeemer. She was the recipient of grace, not a dispenser of grace. She was a worshiper, not an object to be worshipped. That's the Mary but she writes, in case you were, we sang Christmas carols earlier today. We'll sing them, I'm sure, in your own home. And we'll sing them again come uh, Christmas Eve night at our Christmas Eve gatherings. But you want to know the very first Christmas carol ever sung? It is sung by the lips of the mother of Jesus, Mary. And it's verse 46 to verse 55. And this is what Mary said. And it's called the Magni- Magnificent in, in the Latin. It's because the very first word in the Latin, in the Greek, uh, excuse me, in the Latin is magnifies, which is right there. It says, verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my, uh, my, excuse me, rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, it doesn't say they're going to worship her. They're just going to acknowledge the fact that, Mary, you've received grace and favor from God, just like you and I receive grace and favor from God. All right, verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength from his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those uh, of humble estate, and He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel 
in remembrance of His mercy, He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Verse 56, And Mary remained with her, that was Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. In my 20 plus years of ministry, I have never preached a message from this passage right here. And this week or the past couple of weeks as I've been putting this together, I have found myself go into a beautiful time of worship. When I read this through, began to pull out things, began to see things that I'd never really put, spent the time to see before, I began to dance. Now, that's not a pretty sight, I'll promise you that, and I'm not going to demonstrate what I did. So, uh, But I began to just be excited about what Mary said here. And then I found myself humbled and on my knees in humility from what Mary said here. In this passage of Scripture, my friends, we have the very first message, excuse me, the very first Christmas carol ever written. We have the very first doctrinal statement of Jesus ever written. We have in here the very first doctrinal statement, Him written of Jesus by His mother of all people. Declaring who He is. We are getting it right here. And what we are learning from this is how to worship Jesus. I want to give you six things really quickly because I don't have time from this verse, from these verses that will hopefully help you in your worship. Because I'll tell you right now, and I'll tell you now, and I'll tell you at the end of this message, when it all is said and done, when this life is all said and done, it's going to come back to Jesus and in worshiping Him. When all this time is said and done, and the last dot on the last page of time is said and done, it's going to come back to worshiping Jesus. You read the Revelation, it comes back to worshiping Him. You read the Psalms, it comes back to worshiping Him. It's about bringing worship to Him. So what do we learn? The very first thing we learn is that Jesus is the center of worship. The very first statement that Mary makes is magnifies the Lord. Magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Notice the personalization of her worship. My soul deep within me magnifies the Lord. Now the word magnifies doesn't need a lot of definition. It just means make big. My soul is making big, God. Are you in your life, are you worshiping God? How do you know if you're worshiping God? Because your life is making God big. When's the last time you've been overwhelmed by God? When's the last time your soul just cried out because God was so big and your life was so small and you just cried out to Him because He is so massive and awesome and love, is His grace runs so deep. Do you have that kind of relationship? Or is this something, some kind of far off talk here? See, to be in a worship relationship with God, to be in that means that your soul is making a big deal of God. We come into this place week after week, and please, I love everyone who comes here. But please don't think that just because you come here, you've worshipped. Please, if they're in the band or they're singing in the choir, just because you're here, you've worshipped. No, worship means making God big and me small. And the bigger I can make God, the smaller I can make of me, 
That is what worship looks like. Like what Martin Luther said, he said, if you look at a grain of wheat very closely, you will be overwhelmed by the glory of God. See, God is in the micro. But as He is in the micro, we need to make big of Him. When you look at your life and you start looking at every detail of your life, your own creation, your own family, your own life, your own, you begin to see God in those very small details of your life. You begin to worship God. You begin to bring magnification to God. Alright, number two, second thing to jot down about Mary and her worship that we see is that worship, now don't miss this, worship flows, flows out of a personal redemption story. Mary herself, the mother of God, the mother, excuse me, the mother of Jesus, not the mother of God, God's always existed, but brought Jesus into, into this world. She said this in verse 47, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My Savior. Don't skip over that, please, because that's so big. Because again, there's a tradition in the church today that would say that, that Mary never sinned. But I want you to see from the pages of Scripture, not from the traditions of the church, the pages of Scripture that Mary herself declares that she needs a Savior. And that Mary herself declares that Jesus Christ is her Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone. I think about when Mary went to the cross one of those four times that we see Mary in Scripture, when Mary was at the foot of the cross, she's looking at her son dying. Now, please, parents, imagine with me you watching the suffering of your own child. Not a pleasant picture. She's watching her son die on the cross, cruelly, unjustly. What was going on in Mary's mind? Bring Him down, save Him, rescue Him, what can I do? All those things were going on in her mind. But I also wonder, because of this verse right here, I also wonder, what was disturbing her the most? To see her son suffering or to know that it was her sins that put her own son on the cross? See, worship flows out of redemption story in our own hearts. And I wonder today, if you don't have the redemptive story of God being written in your life, I wonder today, can you really even worship God? Can you really even know Jesus at Christmas time? If you don't know the redemptive story and can cry out to Jesus as your Savior, I wonder if you can even call Him in worship. Number three, if you're going to worship God as Mary worships God, then... Worship involves a personal recognition of who God is and what He has done in your life. Of who God is and what He has done in your life. I want to challenge you this week. Take a page. Take two pages. Take as many pages as you need of your journal, of, of a napkin, of a notebook paper, I don't care, of your wall at home. Do what you want to do where you want to do it. And I want you to just take 2010 and put it at the top. And then I want you to, to just think of all the ways in your life that God has given 
and blessed you in 2010. As we wrap up 2010, what will you say? What will you find? What will you think of? What will you be remembered of? See, what, what happens is when we see God's redemptive story working in us like Mary is, Jesus is her, her Savior, then all of a sudden you become humble and you begin to see all that God has done. Verse 48 says, For He has looked on the humble cause of His servants. See, again, remember she's that no-name girl from Nazareth. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49, For, for who is my... For, for who is mighty has done great things for me. Take that sheet of paper this week. Write it down. Write it down. Write it down. Write down the blessings that God has poured into your life. That's what worship does. That's what Mary does. She begins to think of all the mighty things that God has done in her life. Write them down. Put them on your Facebook. Blog them. Do whatever you got to do to just write down in 2010, this is how God has blessed me. And turn your next week into a week of worship of God. Old hymn says it so well and so simply. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. What else does it say? And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I wonder if you could take this week, as we head up to Christmas, as we get ready to go into probably, I couldn't have designed it any better, Christmas weekend. We have Christmas Eve on Friday night with our candlelight services. Christmas Day on Saturday. And we're going to actually on Friday night give you tools to have worship in your home on Saturday. And then on Sunday morning we're going to come back here and have communion in the two gatherings that we'll have next week. It's going to be a weekend of worship. But how can you prepare yourself for next week? How can you prepare yourself for Christmas morning? Take this week and write down all the blessings of this past year. Number four, humility is the seed of worship. Humility is the seed of worship. Look at, uh, look at these phrases in verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. Mercy is another word for, for God's goodness, unmerited favor upon us. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud. Circle that phrase, scattered the proud. In the thoughts of their hearts, He has brought down the mighty. Circle that phrase from their thrones. He has exalted. Circle that phrase, those of the humble. See, what Jesus does is Jesus loves worship. He endears Himself to worship. But it comes out of a humble, humble Heart. Would you please gather your attention and look at, right here at me real quickly. The best place, posture you could have for worship today is to come in brokenness. Not in your complete package, I've got it all figured out-ness. It's to come broken. And to watch God begin to put your life together again. My soul magnifies. My Savior. He has done great things in my life. And she begins to list them out. 
She begins to see the humility of it all. And out of that humility uh, springs up worship. Number five, worship is coming hungry and leaving full. Not coming full and leaving hungry. Now, she creates a dichotomy here. And you look at this passage of Scripture, look at verse uh, 53. It says, And the field, uh, and he has filled the hungry with good things. But now look at this. And the rich he has sent away empty. See, again, it comes back to that humility. It comes back to the fact that what I need to bring to Christ is the emptiness and the nothingness and the brokenness of my life so that He can fill it. But whenever I come whole and complete and I've got all my little ducks in a row and and my life is whole, who needs God? Who needs God? Take Him or leave Him. But when we look into the mirror of our hearts, not just our faces, we look into the mirror of our hearts and we see the brokenness and the torn down and, and, and the abuse and the broken promises that we've given and that we've received. We see the brokenness. We come to a Savior, empty and broken and spilled out. What does He do? He fills us. He gives filling to those who are hungry, but those who are full and rich, He sends away empty. Listen, let's stop filling up on the synthetics of this world. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, He said, Blessed are the hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. He wants us to come hungry. It's why He says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What in a dichotomy again. To be poor is to be rich like heaven. To be hungry and thirsty is to be filled. To come empty in worship is to be filled by His Spirit, by His presence, and the reality of who He is. I'm talking mystical stuff here, I know. It may not register with all I know, but it's something that we've got to understand if we're going to understand worship at a deeper level. Number six, worship is historically biblical. Jesus, whenever He put the qualifications of what real worship was, He said, you must worship Me in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. The truth that He speaks of is the Word of God because at another time in Scripture, Jesus prays for His disciples to sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. Truth is this book right here. Why do we come week after week after week and give a a preeminent position in our worship service to this book? Why do I say that it's not the traditions of man or of the church or of what Mike McDaniel says, but it's what the Word of God says? It's because it's not about me. It's not about our church's traditions. It's about this book and what this book tells us about God and how we can connect with God. Why do we ask the tough questions of our life? Why do we want to make sure our life is in alignment with this book? Because this book is where worship comes out of. When you look at Mary and her response, what does she say in verse 54? He has helped His servant Israel. She's referring to the nation in remembrance of His mercy. As He spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What does Mary do? This little 14, 15 year old teenage girl. She remembers back to Sabbath school. She remembers back to the Bible stories being told by her mother and her father. She remembers back to whenever they talked about way, 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 way back. Back in Genesis chapter 12, back when Abraham was told that all the nations of the world would be blessed through you, Abraham. 
And Mary makes the connection. Because worship flows out of the Word of God. And she remembered that God had promised Abraham thousands of years prior to that that there would be a blessing for all the nations of the world. And she realized on that day, because she knew the Word of God on that day, that 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 baby inside of her womb was of God. Worship. It's really what it comes down to. You know, there's a lot in these three messages that I've shared. There's a lot of contrast. When you think of the Magi, there was, there was worldview contrast, ethnic contrast. There was distance and mileage and geographical contrast from a Mary or the shepherds out in the field by night. When you think about the, the angels and the message of the angels coming, there's contrast. you got the cosmic versus mankind. Contrast. When you got Mary over here, you've got Mary and nobody from Nazareth. And you've got the magi, the wealthy, the, the educated, the, up, the, the movers and shakers of the Persian Empire. Contrast. What's, what is one, one similarity of all of them? It's the word worship. When the Magi came, they brought costly, expensive, timely, personal gifts. And they laid them at Jesus' feet. And they bowed down and they worshipped Him. What did the angels do when they couldn't keep silent any longer? They, they woke up the shepherds on the side of the hills declaring that Jesus was born and to go and to see Him. They couldn't keep it inside any longer. They began to worship What does Mary do whenever she finds out in Elizabeth's home she begins to sing the very first Christmas carol ever sung? Wow. It comes down to worship. You know, this coming Friday night we're going to have, Christmas Eve, we're going to have a time to give just like the Magi. You can bring your gifts and they'll go to great causes beyond our church walls. You know what? We're going to have time of worship in your family. We're going to encourage you to worship in your family just like Mary worshipped with uh, Elizabeth on that day. When it comes down to it, I hope that you can say with Mary, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. If Jesus Christ isn't your Savior today, then this Christmas season is nothing more than tinsel and trees. It needs to be about Jesus and about worshiping Him. I'm going to pray. We're going to have some of our leaders, Wade, David, Lori will be up here at the front. If you're here at this Christmas time and you can't say with all your heart, as Mary said on that day, Jesus is my Savior, you come talk to these people. They'll pray with you. They'll just, you don't have to know what to say. Just say, I just need to make sure Jesus is my Savior. I'm not sure. Father God, it's about worshiping you. It'll be all about worshiping you, making your name great, magnifying your name, making a big deal of you, Jesus. We're missing that, Lord. Forgive us. And help us right here, right now, in this Christmas season, in this week before we celebrate the Christmas story. Lord, 
may we right now be brought to our knees in humble worship.